the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Many of us allow fear to stop us from achieving what our heart desires. We don't take risks. Today's guest, Lisa Thompson, climbs mountains to challenge herself physically and to explore her own inner landscape. She teaches that we are responsible for defining our own boundaries, finding our own happiness, and facing our fears head on. Lisa is a mountaineer, cancer survivor, speaker, and coach. She has completed the seven summits, reaching the top of the highest peak of each of the seven continents. Through her company, Alpine Athletics, Lisa shares her message of strength and resilience. She is the author of the book, Finding Elevation, Fear and Courage on the World's Most Dangerous Mountain. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me, Joan. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Lisa, what you've achieved is truly remarkable, but I have to ask, how does someone raised in the flat farmlands of Illinois go on to climb the greatest mountains in the world? What led you to following that path? It's a very fair question, because I didn't grow up being from the Midwest part of the U.S. I I wasn't surrounded by mountains, and I also didn't, you know, didn't learn or know about, like, pioneering efforts of Sir Edmund Hillary to climb Mount Everest. It just wasn't even in my lexicon. It wasn't something my family talked about or I knew about. And I wasn't even particularly athletic when I was a kid either. So about 25 years later, I um, had a job. I moved to Seattle, which is where I live today. And here, climbing and being in the mountains is a big part of the culture. We're fortunate to be surrounded by beautiful mountain ranges. And so I took this first job in Seattle and I was the only woman at my level uh, in that, in that role. And the, my peers who were, you know, great guys, they would regularly go climbing on the weekend to mountains local to Seattle. And I knew nothing about climbing, really didn't have a desire to learn, wasn't even curious particularly about it. But when my peers would come back to the office on Monday, they had these great stories about boarding icy rivers together and traveling up steep slopes wearing crampons as a rope team. And I, what I saw, you know, sitting in my dingy cubicle on Monday, what I saw and felt was this camaraderie. Mm-hmm. that my peers shared. And I felt very left out of that. And I thought that if I could join them climbing, they would start to see me as capable in the office, that that would somehow translate to me being included in this group. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I could have done the very logical thing, which would have been to say to them, hey, that sounds like fun. Can I come with you? Or how but about you want to I go just... for a drink after work? <laughs> Or that would have been much easier, yes. (laughs) But I just didn't have the courage or the voice back then to do that. And so instead, I got frustrated by, you know, feeling left out. And I decided I would go climbing on my own. Again, no idea. I had no idea what that meant or what it would entail and certainly not what it would lead to. But it really was, you know, this sense of wanting to be seen as capable and included that drove me to start climbing. And I would say that that sense of 
of needing to prove myself stuck with me for a lot of years. <laughs> but it really does, Lisa, it really does show the power of, of what we're each capable of. Because, you know, when I, I wanted to lead off with that question, because I'm a girl from Jersey and I'm thinking, you know, who does this and why do they do it? But taking someone like you, taking someone like me and just it it shows what we are capable of achieving mm-hmm. when we put our mind to something. So true. So true. And I, I think, you know, a lot of people and maybe you fall into this category, Joan, if you want me to do something, mm-hmm. the best way to motivate me is to tell me I can't do it or I shouldn't do it. Absolutely. Because that just lights a fire like nothing else. And that was that was how I felt back then. But how does a person, Lisa, even go from knowing nothing about the sport to climbing the seven summits? How is that even possible? Well, I spe- I'm also very studious. I And I like data. I like to study. I like to learn. And so initially, the first mountain I climbed was Mount Rainier, which is the highest peak in Washington. It's 14,400 feet. And I summited that on my second attempt in 2009. And I learned so much. Like when I look back on that first climb, my backpack was so, so heavy, contained so many things I didn't need. And it was painful. It was hard. And so that forced me to to look at the situation and try to understand what I could do better, what I could Mm -hmm. learn, how I could make this easier on myself. And so gradually I just began to learn more and more, to become more and more confident, to build my skills. Um, I focused you know, very, very intently on physical preparation because I felt like, you know, I back then and still sometimes I'm the only woman on a climbing team. And I knew that I couldn't control what other people thought of me. And, you know, there were many times when people thought like, oh, that's cute. You think you're going to climb Denali, for example. Um, And so I wanted to be as prepared as I could possibly be. So being prepared physically became like a part-time job for me. Um, and gradually, I the other thing I would say, especially if people are interested in you know learning about climbing, is to just align yourself with other people, other climbers who are more skilled than you, whom you trust, and that are willing to share and you know learn and, and help you learn and teach you bit by bit what it takes to climb big mountains. What type of training goes into preparing for that type of climb? <laughs> I could talk about this all day. <laughs> so this is my so Alpine Athletics is the company I started in 2018. After I realized that hey, I am often much more prepared physically than anyone else on my team, and there's something to that. And so I myself got a, a very well-known climbing coach and learned a lot about about the answer to that question, and um, and eventually started a company where now I get to coach people every day. So um, looking back, it's just an amazing turn of events. But so mountaineering is an endurance activity. And most people early on don't realize that or don't consider it as such. And so they'll, you know, sort of go to the gym and lift a bunch of weights and do a bunch of squats and get their lower body, you know, really strong, but overlook the fact that you've got to climb for multiple hours per day on successive days for, you know, most big mountain climbs. And so it requires a lot of, you know, not super fun, not super sexy cardio work. That's pretty moderate intensity for the individual, um, but high volume of that. And so that's really, I think, what makes the difference for for athletes, especially if they're new to an endurance activity like climbing. And there's also a really big mental component, as you can imagine, um, you know, I've seen many people who are physically prepared, strong enough to climb, even Mount Rainier. I've seen them turn around 20 minutes out of the parking lot because they just, you know, something gets in their mind about this being too hard and they're able, they're unable to push through that. And they let this belief that they're not able to do it become pervasive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I also, you know, in my personal climbing and in the, the mountaineers that I coach, really focus on being as mentally prepared as possible for whatever the peak is that you're about to attempt. Everything that you're describing with mountain climbing, there are just so many wonderful life lessons because you were talking (laughs) about the things that were within your control and outside of your control and fitting in. And, you know, we all have mountains in our lives that are representative Mm -hmm. of something we're going through. But how do you prepare 
for the things that are outside of your control. Like you, you said, you get your mental toughness and you're physically ready. But what about all those things that are outside of your control, the weather, the terrain? How do you get your head ready for those things? Yeah, great question. I think the, the first thing is to identify as best you can what those things are. And when we're talking about most mountains that are, you know, regularly climbed have been climbed by a lot of other people. And so we have decent data about, you know, what is the weather like? What are the objective hazards? Objective hazards being things like rockfall or avalanche. And those, so I think those are, for the large part, known possibilities. But as you said, whether or not you will encounter those situations is entirely unknown and entirely out of a climber's control. And so I do a couple of things. First, I want to know what all those things are. I want to know what my risk of encountering rockfall is, for example, what the temperatures are going to be like, what you know, typical weather, typical winds, typical temperatures are like for that peak at that time. And then I really assess for myself, what is it that worries me about those things? You know, in the case of Rockfall, obviously, the the worst outcome could be death. And so what am I going to do, A, to keep myself safe, but also to prepare myself in case that happens? Um, And I, you know, the more there's so many unknowns on a mountain, and the more that I can make those unknowns something that is less novel, to me and to my brain, the less stressful they're going to be. So I go into every big climb with a plan for, you know, what are those things that could get in my way and have a plan to work through them. And, you know, in the case of something like being cold or bad weather, I'll, you know, tell myself I'm going to add a layer of of gloves, for example. I'm going to go 20 minutes. I'm going to see if I feel any better. And if I don't, sometimes the outcome is that I need to turn around um, there was a point on K2, we were at about 26,000 feet. I was with my team and we thought the weather was going to be great for a summit attempt, as great as it can be. <laughs> great meaning low winds and maybe, you know, 10 below zero. And when we got to that elevation, that was not the case. It had snowed much more, about five feet more than we had expected, which made avalanche risk very, very high. And so we as a team had to meet and decide what our options were and what the best course of action would be for for us collectively. And fortunately, we were able to wait it out. We got new weather forecasts, which showed that the storm would abate in about two days and we had enough food and resources to stay at that camp and wait out the storm and were able to then summit. But um, I guess the short answer to that question is just knowing knowing what those possible things are that are out of your control and as best as you can having a plan to work through those if they occur. Lisa, you're a cancer survivor. How did that diagnosis factor into mountain climbing? <laughs> it's, a, it's a question that I have, you know, tried. I think I very often for a long time, I wanted to know if, if cancer informed my climbing or if climbing helped me get through cancer. And I don't think that they can be separated. I finally, after years of pondering that question, realized that they're so intertwined that I can't, I can't separate them. They're just a part of who I am. And so I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2015. And that diagnosis came just as I was preparing to climb in the Himalaya for the first time. So the Himalaya is, you know, this huge mountain range that bisects Asia. And I felt very proud of myself to be ready to take on a peak there. I was planning to climb a mountain called Montesquieu, um, which is one of the, the – there's only 14 mountains in the world that are above 8,000 meters or 26,000 feet, and this was one of them. So it was a really big deal for me as a climber to be ready to take that on. And so to receive that diagnosis at that time, you know, regardless of your situation in life, it's devastating. And I realized that having cancer gave me the motivation and having that mountain still on the horizon gave me the motivation to work through cancer. Um, And I saw, you know, to me, cancer became, and this isn't to say there weren't moments where I felt sorry for myself and, you know, cried and asked why was this happening? But I really saw it as a project. And that's like, 
my goal right now is to kick cancer's butt. And I want people surrounded by, I want to be surrounded by people who are strong, who are totally committed to that goal like I am. And it, you know, thankfully things came together. I had an incredible uh, medical team here in Seattle at Swedish Medical Center, and I was able to go to Nepal as planned um, that year and to climb Montesquieu. When I look back, thinking about sort of the other side of that, you know, cancer taught me more than anything that life is incredibly fragile, that it can change for us in an instant, despite believing that we've done all these things that we think will keep us safe. Um, it's incredibly fragile and that it's up to each of us to define our lives and to define the lives that we will live. And so those two things, cancer and mountaineering, became this very intertwined for me. And I, I think that one, they, they supported and informed each other in a way that made me who I am today. I recently interviewed a woman who wrote a book and her work is a, is around understanding your mortality and living your life as though you're mm. going to die. And because, mm. you know, it's her belief that everything becomes more precious and, and we live in a different way when we can see the end in sight, not necessarily yep. having diagnosis, but just living with that understanding. Do you think that cancer diagnosis taught you in a way to eliminate more fears? Did you become even more courageous if that's possible? Were you more willing to take risks after that? Yeah, and I absolutely did. It made me realize that, you know, when you're in your 40s, you just, mortality is not often something that you, that you spend a lot of time thinking about. And so it brought that into very clear focus for me. And it, it also just reinforced, probably isn't the right word, it made me realize that it could be taken away from me at any second. And I did not want to look back on my life, however long or short that might be, and have any regrets. I wanted to get the most out of it that I, that I could. I didn't want to look back and say, well, I should have, I should have attempted Mount Everest just to see what it was like. I wanted, I wanted to do it and to put everything I, I had into it. And maybe it didn't work out. You know, same with starting my own business. Like that was, that was a daunting, scary decision, but I would have regretted not doing it. And maybe, you know, it would be very curious to know more about this book, because often if I'm having trouble making a decision, I will try to fast forward to the end of my life and, and ask myself, would I regret not doing this? Or would I regret this decision versus that decision? And that usually makes it very clear what the right path is for me. Yeah. You know, when I started doing this work over a decade ago, it really was the result of going through a lot of personal trauma. And I had lost almost everything in my life. And, and you know, when you get brought to your mm -hmm. knees, so to speak, you do start to appreciate life differently. And you look at fear differently, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I've learned that there really is no such thing as failure or fear. It's just a learning lesson. It's a, it's a shift. It's a different way to do something. And, and I think that that really is just such a big lesson to learn that we're here for a very short period of time. Every day is precious. And we really should live mm -hmm. as though we're not going to be here forever. Yes, I completely support that. And I, you know, the, the word failure to me, I wish in our culture it had a different connotation. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Because so often, you know, those things that we might label as a failure are, are really opportunities to learn what's right for us, what isn't right for us, what relationships work, what jobs work, what city we want to live in. And I, I love the idea of it's just input, right? It's just information that helps us, I think, narrow in on where we should be. Um, I'm, I'm really this year trying to change the meaning of the word failure for myself. When you wanted to start climbing, what did the people around you say? Did they think you were crazy? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and even that carried through until, you know, my father, I learned my father had cancer, had lung cancer when I was climbing Mount Everest. And um, he died about a month later. And he, you know, was a big part of my life, was always very, very proud of me. And at the same time, terrified of what I was doing. And particularly before, you know, or when I made the decision to climb K2, um, the people around me, you know, something sort of shifted. When I, when I was, you know, preparing and climbing Everest, people were very supportive and like they could sort of wrap their brains around what it meant to climb Mount Everest, their movies. And K2 is a completely different 
beast. It's, you know, though it's the second highest mountain in the world. It's about 800 feet shorter than Mount Everest. Um, it's on the Pakistan-China border, so much more remote than Mount Everest and much, much more deadly. Um, you know, depending on what stats you read, about one in four people who attempt K2 um, don't make it. And so it was important for me that my dad, before he died, knew that this was the next mountain that I was going to attempt. And, you know, obviously, you know, their friends and loved ones knew as well. And I could see sort of in their eyes when I would share this with them or when I would talk about K2 that they were worried about me, whereas before I think they were excited and supportive. And it's an interesting thing that that happens when, you know, I can sense this worry and this concern, which I know is coming from a place of love. But there's also this element of them I felt there was this element of them not wanting me to do it for that reason, of wanting me to, to stay safe so badly that I wouldn't attempt this thing that was very important to me. And so there were some difficult conversations mm-hmm. um, that took place with, you know, with family members and with friends about why this is important to me and knowing that they couldn't really fully appreciate because they hadn't had this experience before they hadn't, you know, been in, in a, on a mountaintop and felt just the sense of accomplishment or exhilaration. And so there was a lot of difficult conversations that ended just in trust and like, this is important to me for me to be who I am. Right. And I appreciate and respect your love and concern. And I need to do this anyway. And I really want your support as I move forward. Right. And so, it, you know, it came together, but it was not an easy time in my life. And I understand that. And I'm sorry for your loss. I lost my father to lung cancer as well. So I do understand. Okay. And when you climb to the highest peaks in the world, what is it like to be standing there looking out at the world? Is it almost like mm-hmm. you feel like you're touching heaven? Like, what does that feel like? Yeah, it is a very, anytime I'm in the mountains, it it makes me feel very small mm-hmm. and insignificant and vulnerable. And those are feelings that I try to avoid <laughs> the rest of my life, right? We spend a lot of time, at least I do, not appearing vulnerable, always appearing like in control and knowing everything. And the fact is that in those situations, it's the mountain that's in control. It's not me. And I'm a you know tiny speck on her flanks and am asking for safe passage. And so that sort of feeling of being, of trusting something that's bigger than me, to me, this creates a sense of wholeness in my life because I think it's so counter to every other part of my life. Um, The feeling on the summit is, you know, I think a lot of people think you get to the summit and there's a big party and you, you know, congratulate one another. and, And while that is true, can be true, to me and to many people, the summit is halfway. (laughs) Um, And so I have a pretty hard no celebrating rule at the summit of a big peak because there is so much that can go wrong on the descent. And in fact, most climbing accidents occur while descending. And so I will generally, you know, take a moment to just be grateful to the mountain and to the circumstance and the people that have helped me achieve that. And then, you know, have this sort of checklist of making sure my gear is solid, checking my oxygen levels, taking some photos, and then descending, which is, you know, it's crazy. I think people are often surprised by the fact that you've spent sometimes years training for this moment, and that moment lasts maybe 20 minutes, and then, Mm -hmm. you know, it's time to descend. But I think that feeling of accomplishment is something that mountaineers will keep with them forever, myself included. And I also think that, like many significant events, the impact of that continues to evolve and stick with you over time. And, you know, those are the feelings that I really relish, sometimes more than standing on the summit. The book is Finding Elevation, Fear and Courage on the World's Most Dangerous Mountain. If you'd like to get more information about Lisa and her work, you can visit lisaclimbs.com. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Really, I'm so grateful that you were here to share all of this with us and all that you've learned. So thank you for being here. Thank you. This has been a fun conversation. I appreciate it. 
This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Odette Coronel, a coach who helps people create the life and relationships they want. She's here today to discuss steps to creating an awesome life. Welcome, Odette. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Joan. Thanks so much for having me on your show. I'm excited to talk to you today. Odette, I love this one. Let's just start off by talking a little bit about what you mean when you say an awesome life. So just like no two snowflakes are alike, how we define an awesome life is personal and unique to each individual. So what I mean by an awesome life is to live the life that you want that's based on your own gifts and talents and your own unique purpose in the world. It's really just taking ownership of your life and doing the things that you're meant to do, not just the things that are expected of you or that you think you should be doing. Well, and I think the key point in that, Odette, is that you're focusing on your goals, your purpose, your desires. And what happens to all of us is we get so caught up in living for other people that we forget about what it is we want and what's important to us. That's exactly right, Joan. What happens is that we tend to focus on just doing what we believe is expected of us, and we lose focus of even exploring what it is that makes us happy and that we should be doing. And we're just living from a reactive state rather than taking ownership of your life. But when you're doing what you're meant to be doing that really is in alignment with who your authentic self is, then that's what's going to lead you to feel happy, right? You're going to be able to to do things with passion and enthusiasm. And I think the unhappiness that so many people feel is the consequence of not living according to our own core values. Exactly. And it's like, you know, John Quick talks about being a thermostat, not a thermometer. And I really love that analogy because when you're a thermostat, you set the setting for the temperature that you want. But if you're a thermometer, you kind of check the temperature and then you adjust yourself accordingly. The same thing in life. Like you want to set your standards. You want to create the the life that you want. You want to do the kind of work that you want. You want to know what your values are, what your priorities are, and live in alignment with that so that you can, can live in peace and, and, and feel happy. So what are some of the steps then that people should follow to create this awesome life? What do you advise we do? So I have a formula. I call it a formula. It's called the life formula, L-I-F-E. And the first step is to create a long-term vision, right? I, I think that that's the foundation to creating an awesome life. You have to kind of visualize it and see it in your mind and define it in order to know where it is that you're going. The next step is identify what your strengths, values, and beliefs are. This is where you kind of take that deep dive into the relationship with yourself. Again, like I mentioned before, you explore what are your strengths, what are your resources, what opportunities do you have, what have you learned from your past experiences or challenges or even your accomplishments, and then you also want to explore your values. This part is really important because your values serve as a compass and they guide you in every decision that you make and they really help you formulate your goals. And then you also want to identify what your beliefs are, which ones you want to hang on to, and decide which ones no longer serve you. The next step is you want to form your goals, goals, habits, and actions. And you do that by, you know, first imagine your life a year from now or even five years from now. And then think, what are some of the most important things that can happen in order to have that life? This is how you create your goals. And then you want to chunk it down to like a 90-day goal, a monthly goal, even a daily goal. In terms of your goals, you always want to make them smart. They call it smart. You want to make it specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time-bound. And from there, once we have our goals set, 
Now we have to think about the habits and the action steps that we can take on a daily basis in order to get one step closer to the goal. And then the final part of this is the E, which is just experience and evaluate. You experience and you think about what you're doing, right? You reflect, you keep exploring, you ask yourself, what's going well? What's not going well? What should I keep doing? Because an awesome life, it's, it's really a way of life. It's really a lifestyle. An awesome life is not a destination that you get to. It's a lifestyle that you create. So I think that's pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Odette, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Odette and her work, you can visit odettecoronel.com. And as always, to hear more from Odette, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Odette. We'll be right back. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Epilepsy is one of the most common neurological disorders in the world. It's characterized by recurrent seizures that impact approximately 3.4 million in the United States alone. Today's guest, Pro Football Hall of Famer Alan Fanica, has been described as the best guard in the history of the Pittsburgh Steelers, but his career nearly ended before it even began. Alan's here today to share the story of how epilepsy impacted his life. Alan is a former professional football player and 2021 Pro Football Hall of Fame inductee. In addition to coaching, he works to empower and inspire others who face epilepsy. Welcome, Alan. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, John. So, Alan, I, I want to start off by sharing a little bit about your story. What was it that happened to you on Christmas Eve in 1991? Well, that was the night I had my first seizure, um, I was, uh, to set the scene, I was at my uh, great-grandparents' farm uh, out in the country in uh, Texas and was there for the big family Christmas, and I had a seizure that night, and and it took the form of uh, just really a a bad nightmare is kind of what it felt like. I ran around the house kind of crying and screaming. Uh, Nobody knew what was wrong with me, and nobody thought anything about it being a seizure. Um, You know, then we wake up, and it's Christmas morning, and you know, I'm a kid. I'm ready to open up presents. And, you know, everybody's a little bit concerned about what happened during the night. Uh, so, you know, that's definitely prompted us to uh, seek uh, medical help and uh, to go see doctors and, and start to taking the test and uh, eventually figured out that it was epilepsy that I had. Alan, before that occurrence, looking back now, were there any signs? Had anything happened prior to that? There, there were no signs. Um uh, they, they doctors were able to point to uh, a, a part of my brain that uh, that gives me my epilepsy, uh, and it uh, comes from the a, a hard knock of uh, uh, from when I was much younger. Uh, I had a couple of instances of uh, knocking my head when I was basically just playing around with kids, playing too rough um, with uh, with cousins and stuff, uh, or playing basketball that uh, it, it comes from. So you're an athlete, and, and with what you just described, was that something that you were concerned about throughout your career? Not throughout my career, but definitely, you know, in the beginning. You know, this is uh, 1991. This is before the Internet and asking your phone to answer questions for you. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's no readily uh, available answers. So, you know, we get the diagnosis that it is epilepsy, and we're preparing to go visit with the doctor with my family and myself and you know we've got this long laundry list of of questions to to ask and you know once you get through all the basic you know how's this going to affect my life then we got to you know football and basketball and sports and about all these other things um and you know the doctor was was very forthright and was like no keep chasing your dreams keep doing it um there's no reason that you can't It, it won't affect uh you and, uh, you know, I, I didn't ask twice. I got the answer I, I wanted uh, and, uh, and needed. And uh, I took it and ran. And I really just took it as a, a, a thing to, to, to keep chasing my dreams and not to, not to let anything stop me. Is that the best advice that you would offer to someone listening right now? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, I often tell people, you know, to, you know, the way I feel about it and, you know, I hope everybody can feel like that or eventually find a way to feel like that is that that epilepsy is part of us, but it does not define us. It is uh, just a small part of who we are. There are so many more things 
about us as individuals that make us who we are that uh, we have to be more proud of and more cognizant of than, than just the epilepsy part. How were you able to manage it from the time you got the diagnosis? What was the treatment? You know, the treatment was, was finding the, the right medication and uh, the right uh, dosing. Um, and, you know, uh, it, it took some time going through high school. It took some time to find that right medication. You know, and if your body is changing and growing, uh, you're, you're adjusting uh, and, and playing with all this medicine until you finally get to the right regimen that, that's good for you. And, uh, you know, that, that, that was my path. But, you know, my daughter also has epilepsy, uh, and her path is 100% different than my path. And everybody's path is different. Uh, and that's kind of what the Steps Towards Zero is about, is just trying to, to get everybody engaged uh, and help educate, inspire, and activate the community so that we can uh, all move forward and find find our, our steps towards zero, what our goal of zero uh, can mean to us. So you say that one of your goals is to educate others. We've heard about epilepsy, but I don't think many people really know what it is. So what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions around epilepsy? You know, I think the biggest misconception is what Hollywood shows us epilepsy is which is the, the scary convulsing on the floor uh, situation, uh, which is very true for a, a lot of people with epilepsy, but not everybody. And even the people who have that form of epilepsy, uh, that's not the only thing they are. It's just something that they have to deal with. Um, and even though that it, it can be scary if you don't know what's going on, if you uh, educate yourself a little bit, know a little bit more, um, you'd be more prepared to help. Uh, you wouldn't be as scared of the situation and you would know a little bit more about what's going on with the person who's having the seizure. Yeah, because education is the key to destigmatize epilepsy or any type of a disorder that we're afraid of. Correct, correct. And that's really that's really a big part of this movement is to, to destigmatize it, uh, to kind of get from behind it and get out in front of it. Um, you know, don't don't hide from it. And the more 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 I can talk about it and the more people can hear my story you know, maybe I can help empower somebody to step out from behind it uh, and, and own it and not be so concerned about what other people think uh, and take a little little control of, of the situation. And there's so many people out there, especially young people with epilepsy. Um, you know, you're just trying to be a teenager or you're trying to play in your youth sports team and, you know, you're just trying to be normal, right? So many kids fight and struggle just to be normal without dealing with anything else. Now you have epilepsy. Yeah. Now you got this really... Uh, adult problem that you have to deal with and take very seriously that your friends and peers don't have to. Uh, so it, it's very, uh, I think it feels very heavy, especially on, on the young who have uh, epilepsy. And, and just to, to share with them and tell stories and tell some of my funny stories. Uh, you know, I, I, I had a seizure one morning in high school uh, after my mom had already went to work and I walked to school in my pajamas one morning and I lived about a mile from my high school uh, it didn't really snap out of it till I got to school. And, um, you know, that's it happened to me. And to tell that story and to let a kid know that, that they're not alone in whatever situation that they're afraid of or something that did happen to them, that they're not alone, um, it makes me feel better, and it's all the more reason for me to talk about it. Alan, what does a seizure feel like, what, what you just described to us? Did you know what was happening at the time? You know, for everybody, it's different. For everybody, it's different. Um uh, a lot of times for me, uh, I feel uh, like I am uh, late uh, and I have to just I'm, I have to rush somewhere. Um, and uh, that, that's that's kind of the form mine takes when uh, when I'm awake. So that's kind of why I, why I rushed off to school. I, I probably felt like I was late. Uh, sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't know what's going on. Um, there's been times when I've had one and, and, and had no idea. And then uh, all of a sudden, you know. Uh, my loved ones are around me when I kind of snap out of it. So mm-hmm. uh, it takes all forms, and, and everyone's path is, is completely different. And, and and really, that's what the Steps Towards Zero is about, is to, to get all these people on all these different paths to realize that, that we, can, we can find a better path, a better way, uh, how to talk to your doctors, how to join the conversation uh, at StepsTowardsZero.com to let everybody know that, that you're not alone. Uh, and that there are ways to, to get better and to always strive and always try and keep not, not settling for what the status quo is for you. 
Did you ever have someone, because of his or her fear or misunderstanding, put up a roadblock for you? Did you ever have a coach who said you shouldn't play or anything like that? And if you did, how did you overcome those challenges? I never had any coach uh, put up uh, anything like that. But, I, but I've had plenty of uh, interactions, uh, you know, especially in my early years in high school. Um, you know, uh, all of a sudden a friend's not so friendly anymore. They're a little bit distant or... Uh, you know, people kind of question what you're doing. Are you are you, are you able to do that? Um, and you know, really from from that that foundation that I got so early on from my my parents and my my family uh, and my doctors and my, my support group, uh, just really owning it and being out in front of it. Um, I just never hid behind it. I was a little bit bullheaded, um, but I just you know I I always kind of I always kind of flipped the script and. You know, my daughter has epilepsy, too, and I, I try to tell her, remind her of that as well. Is You know, if people know you're okay, then what are you worried about? Like, you know, if I can flip the script and say, I'm doing good. I, I answered your questions. I'm good. Anything else you want to ask about it? Uh, it it kind of makes them weirdly at ease with it. Like, if he's okay with it and he's asking me if I'm okay, maybe I'm worried about nothing. Um, it worked for me, and uh, so I advocate for that, and it's just kind of really – uh, owning it a little bit. It's stepping on the other side of the stigma and stepping out in front of it instead of hiding behind it. Alan, how can our listeners get involved with the Steps Towards Zero program? You can go to stepstowardszero.com. It's a movement that was launched by SK Life Science. It's designed to educate, inspire, and activate us. And the more the more we know, the, the better we are. Um, we should all be in pursuit of zero seizures. Zero seizures is recognized as the optimal treatment for people with epilepsy. So if you go in there, you can find your guide um, to talk with your doctors, how to talk about your current medication, your long-term plan, what are your life goals, all these, all these questions. There, there's all these things that, to help you on the website. You can join the conversation. Uh, know that you're not alone. Uh, there's so much information on there. Uh, but the biggest for me is, is to activate. I, I love that word, activate, uh, and it's really what got me behind this cause. Let, let's activate as a community. Um, let's educate. Let's empower. Let's 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 find new ways to find our steps towards zero uh, and find out what that means for each of us, so we can better be uh, be ourselves. Alan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you suffer with heel pain? Hi, I am Dr. Anant Joshi, a podiatrist from Woodland Park, New Jersey, practicing at Advanced Foot Care of NJLLC. According to the American Board of Foot and Ankle Surgery, plantar fasciitis is the most common cause of heel pain. The condition occurs when the plantar fascia on the bottom of the foot becomes inflamed. This ligament is responsible for supporting the foot's arch. Risk factors include being obese, having a very high arch, having tight calf muscles, and participating in activities that create stress on the heel bone. Activities such as running, jumping, certain workout routines. Most people can manage plantar fasciitis with at-home treatment. Resting the foot and applying ice can reduce inflammation. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs such as ibuprofen or naproxen can help with pain management. Stretching the muscles of the leg thoroughly before and after physical activity, as well as throughout the day, may help to reduce the heel pain. Wearing supportive shoes as well as custom-molded orthotics can also help relieve the heel pain. If an individual's plantar fasciitis does not get better with these treatments, see a podiatrist for further treatment options. In today's medical world, there are several non-surgical options available to get rid of plantar fasciitis permanently. If you would like more information or to schedule an appointment, please visit our website, footpainmj.com. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. You've made a substantial financial investment in getting the project done, and you have a beautiful publication with your name on the cover. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life Book Club, a resource guide created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life includes the work of some of the most inspirational and influential authors in the world. Shouldn't you be there too? Let's get started. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. 
Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. Joining us for this week's To Your Health is Dr. Jennifer Sawney, President of the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners. Dr. Sawney is here today to talk about RSV. Welcome, Dr. Sawney. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Dr. Respiratory viruses in young children have many parents concerned, and today we're hearing a lot about RSV. What is RSV and who does it affect most? RSV is a virus that causes common cold symptoms, such as runny nose, cough, congestion, and sneezing. Uh, For some children, though, these symptoms can worsen over several days and lead to a condition called bronchiolitis, which causes wheezing, fast breathing, and other respiratory distress. Now, anybody can get RSV, and most children will have it by the time they're two years old. But some children are at risk for more severe cases of it, and those include premature infants, those that are very young, and those with certain chronic health conditions. Why do you think we're hearing so much about this today? Well, that's a great question. We are amidst cold and flu season, and we have a number of uh, viruses right now that uh, we're, we're seeing really high rates of. Of course, we're seeing RSV, COVID-19, and influenza. So we are in cold and flu season, but again, we're seeing a lot of cases, and it has people concerned because our pediatric hospitals and emergency rooms are becoming overwhelmed uh, with the, the number of children needing to be seen. So what we're hoping to do today is talk about signs to watch for and, and ways that families can manage uh, RSV and these conditions at home and then when to seek care. You just mentioned a number of viruses that are going around. How does RSV differ from a cold, the flu, or even COVID? It's really difficult to tell the difference, especially at home. Oftentimes, we need uh, laboratory testing to determine which virus a a child may have. Um, And most of the time, actually, that testing is not necessary. So, So first, for RSV, COVID, and influenza, there are common symptoms. And we'll see fever, cough, fatigue, runny and stuffy noses. Some differences, though, in RSV, children go on to develop, some children go on to develop respiratory distress, wheezing, and fast breathing. And that's very characteristic of RSV. In COVID, some of the differences are that we may see a loss of taste or smell, headaches, sore throat, and decreased appetite. And then with influenza, we'll often see headache, poor appetite, sore throat, and even body aches. So there's a lot of overlap, and that's really difficult to distinguish, especially at home. So what we like to emphasize is that families should really pay attention to the symptoms and how their child is doing. And then if they're worsening or if they're struggling, that's when they should seek pediatric care. And if folks want to learn more, they can check out our nat- our website, napnap.org forward slash RSV hyphen resources. We have lots more information there. And doctor, how would RSV be treated? That's a great question. The mainstay of treatment we call supportive care. And what that means is uh, you're going to promote fluids. We all know this. When you're sick, you need to promote fluids to prevent dehydration. We're also going to take comfort measures. And this can be as simple as making sure the child has their favorite blanket or stuffed animal. And then if they're having any discomfort, considering Tylenol or ibuprofen for discomfort and pain. What's really important is in infants, if they are congested and have stuffy noses, they have difficulty sleeping and eating. So a good treatment is to drop a couple of drops of saline into one nostril and then suction and then repeat that on the other side before they sleep or eat. And that can help them um, breathe a little easier. And then what I really want families to know is most important is to monitor for worsening symptoms. And so if your child develops wheezing or labored breathing, Those are signs that you need to reach out to your pediatric provider for guidance on whether additional care is needed. And while we're talking about RSV today, everything that you just described, the comfort care, it really would apply to any of the viruses going around. Correct. And these are really um, uh, common approaches, as you say, um, for any viral illness. And But um, the most important thing is, again, monitoring for that change. And then if you're worried, if you're concerned, if there's wheezing, if there's color change, if there's dehydration, know that your pediatric provider is a partner with you in this, and they can help guide you on whether additional care is needed. And usually, would it be appropriate to just contact your doctor, or should you go to the ER? 
Well, most cases of RSV do not require a visit to the emergency department. So some of this is going to be based on your own judgment as a parent looking at your child. But I would say if they're developing wheezing, um, some noisy, noisy breathing, uh, or if they're not taking in a good amount of fluids, I would call their pediatric provider first for guidance. And they'll walk you through whether you need to come into the office or go to the ER. If somebody's having a color change, in particular, if the lip tongue or skin are getting gray or blue, that's a very serious sign of respiratory compromise. You need to call 911 for help. What can we do to prevent RSV or any of these other viruses that are going around? The best way to prevent RSV and many viruses is to wash your hands often, and that includes yours, of course, as well as your child's using soap and warm water. We also want to avoid uh, um, sick contacts, so staying home when you're ill and doing your best to not spread an illness if you are sick. And then, of course, covering coughs and sneezes is also important. I, I laugh because I raised boys and getting them to wash their hands <laughs> is such a struggle. So I think that's just um, probably the best thing that we can get into the habit of doing at any age is to just keep our hands as clean as possible. Absolutely. I'm a mother of twins and I'm right there with you, Joan. <laughs> uh, but a lot of reminders. <laughs> good place to start. And if we have a child who is sick in the house, what are really good safeguards that we should be practicing to keep everyone else in the household healthy? Well, doing your best to keep that child separate from the others. This spreads by, you know, coughs and droplets uh, in the air. And so you want to avoid breathing those in. So if you can keep the child separated in a separate room, uh, again, washing hands often and uh, covering those coughs and sneezes. And that's a challenge in children, I know. Um, but that's the best thing that you can do to avoid spreading this throughout the house. And, Doctor, one more time, where can our listeners go to get more information? We have a wonderful amount of resources at napnap.org forward slash RSV hyphen resources. Dr. Sony, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. joining us, I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.